0: If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 7, the 7th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, I, I say this, and I know it's the nice thing to say, but I want you to hear me uh, this morning. I say it in all sincerity as you're turning to Matthew 7, um, how honored I am to be here. And uh, Sandy Wilson asked me to do anything. Uh, if, if I've got an inkling of time available on my, counter, on my calendar, I will do it. And the reason for it is this. Um, almost, it's almost been seven years to the day um, we landed here. Our family did uh, Memorial Day weekend, 2003, to plant Fellowship Memphis, and uh, one of the first things I did when I got here is I just started calling up uh, some of the key strategic pastors in the city and um, asking to get uh, a meeting with them and to just learn from them. And Sandy Wilson was the only one who responded. Um, and on a natural level, I, I, can, I can see why the other guys didn't respond to me. I mean, we only had 26 people sitting in a living room. Uh, we hadn't even launched our church yet, and yet it speaks volumes about Sandy, uh, that this nobody, Brian Loritz, who only had 26 people as part of his church, um, would, would, in, would uh, give me an audience. And so um, I am forever indebted to Sandy, and he is just so humble, And even to this day, he continues to show me kindness. Uh, He sent me an email not too long ago wanting to put me in a prayer group uh, with him and some other pastors. And about five or six of us get together once a quarter just to pray and encourage one another. And so I want you guys to know, and I understand uh, not all of you go to Second Press, but uh, all of you here this morning, you do sit under Sandy Wilson from time to time in his teaching. I want you to know what a great man of God that you have, who's not just a gifted teacher and communicator of the Word of God, but who is a humble, authentic, sincere lover of Jesus, who has expressed kindness to a nobody like myself. So I am indeed, indeed grateful. I I do have a a bone to pick with you guys, though. I I understand, uh, I was talking to John uh, a little bit earlier um, you know, I understand there's probably a lot of UT fans uh, here, and I'm looking at one right here in the front row. How in the world does Tim Tebow come here? How does that work? Um, so, which, that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, but anyways, you sold out for a, you know, pot of porridge, I guess. So, <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, I've, been, I've really been laboring in prayer on what I should share with you all and about 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon I was going to go in a different direction and as I just prayed I just really sensed the Spirit of God uh, was telling me to share this word with you and it's going to be a pretty intense word, um, so, uh, but as a guest I guess I can be intense. Uh, but Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 24, hear now the word of the Lord. This is Jesus teaching. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching, for his teaching was with authority and not as one of their scribes. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, the very words of God. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, um, I, I happen to be a fan of, of Tyler Perry's um, two movies, Why Did I Get Married? Parts 1 and 2. Now, parenthetically, I'm not a huge fan of Tyler Perry. The whole Medea thing is a little bit hokey to me, uh, but there are two movies that he has that don't have that Medea theme uh, that I really enjoy. It's Why Did I Get Married? Uh, parts 1 and 2. And part of the reason why I love uh, these movies is because Tyler Perry, who happens to be an African-American film writer and producer and director, he is very passionate about presenting to us a different face a different demographic of African Americans. And the African Americans that Tyler Perry produces uh, or, or shows to us via film, they're not um, thugs or uneducated individuals. This demographic are very successful, career driven and oriented, educated individuals who are doing exceptionally well in life. They're doctors and lawyers and architects. And uh, as you look at this film series, Why Did I Get Married? These successful individuals, these successful married couples, They get together once a year away from the hustle and bustle of life to simply beg the question, again, why did I get married? And as you look at this, one of the couples that seem to to grab our attention is a couple portrayed by Malik Yoba and uh, the world-renowned Janet Jackson. And as you look at this couple, your automatic assumption in the opening part of these films is that this couple has it all together. After all, he's a managing partner at his architecture firm, and she is a university professor. And uh, not only that, she specializes in psychology and specifically relationships. And so when her friends' marriages are crumbling, she's the one they go to. And because of this, you automatically assume this couple, this marriage marriage relationship, they have no worries, there's no problems at all. And yet as the film unfolds, you begin to take a peek underneath the hood of their marriage, and you begin to see some very real cracks in their foundation. And one of those cracks stems from the reality that they had a two-year-old son, but due to some negligence on her part, she failed to strap him in. She gets into a car accident, and the two-year-old son dies. Now, out of that tragedy, and I'm totally ruining the film for you, but it's okay. Out of that tragedy, out of that tragedy they never talk about it. The conflict uh, is never resolved. And what then happens is there's a slow, subtle drift in their relationship to the point where they argue, they fuss, they fight all behind closed doors while maintaining the facade that everything's well, and they end up going to divorce court. And since I've ruined the movie for you, let me just ruin it all the way. He dies at the very end. It's a good movie. You ought to see it. And um, so, so he, here's, he, here's, here's the deal. One of the, one of the points, and I'm almost at your neighborhood this morning, but one of the points Tyler Perry is making in the film, it's one of the truisms of life, it is simply this, not all that glitters is gold. Not everything is as it appears. Jesus hammers on this universal truth as we come to our text this morning. Jesus, let's not forget, was a well-trained carpenter. And he pulls on this imagery of carpentry. He pulls on this imagery of building stuff to cement in our minds. And I can almost see to my mind's eyes two houses that have been built. And maybe these houses are very near in proximity and they look exceptionally well. Maybe as a passerby or a traveler, you're looking at these homes and you're saying, wow, I'd love to have one of them. And maybe just maybe you say, OK, I think I want to want to go ahead and pursue this. And you put your bid on one. And then the inspector does his report and he comes by and one of the houses is built on a firm foundation. Yet the inspector's report on the other houses. You want nothing to do with this house, because while it looks exceedingly wonderful, the foundation, Foundation is faulty because the roots do not go down deep enough and the first storm that comes by, it will collapse. Even though it looks great on the outside, when we look beneath the surface, when we look beneath the hood, we see that all that glitters is not gold. I want to talk this morning from the subject, appearances ain't what they seem. Appearances ain't what they seem. Let's pray. Father God, would You speak to us from Your Word this morning? Would You encourage us? I thank You for this study. I thank You for the great men who have gathered here today. Now encourage our hearts from Your Word. Challenge us where appropriate. Convict us where appropriate. But ultimately, Lord God, change us. And that, Lord God, is where I'm dependent upon You. I cannot change anyone My stories, my illustrations, my outline will not change anyone. And yet, Father God, I stand on the sure promises of Your Word this morning that Your Word will not return void. It will do exactly what it's supposed to do in the hearts and lives of the genuinely redeemed. And so, Father God, I come this morning as the sower. I scatter Your seed and I pray that it falls on good ground and that it produces a crop, good fruit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, As we come to this text this morning, I'm reminded what Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century pastor and theologian in London, says about this text. He says it's very interesting. Jesus does not end the world's greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with some flowery little note. He doesn't end with, with patting us on the back, making us feel good, giving us a bunch of attaboys. No, He ends on a very unsettling, intense note. Again, he portrays two houses that have been built. Both experience the same set of circumstances, a storm, and yet one collapses. And he is begging his hearers to be the wise builder. But before we get into the message of this text, I want to explore for about five minutes Jesus' methodology of teaching. Because for any of us who teach the Word of God, whether or not you may be a preacher or a pastor or you teach the Word to your children as the priest in your home or your small group leader, I think there's two things about Jesus' teaching that should encourage and inspire us. Notice, if you will, verse 24, how Jesus begins our text. Hear it. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and then make a mental note and does them. Please notice that Jesus ends His sermon with an appeal for application. He ends this sermon with an appeal to apply what we've just heard. Jesus the teacher, and here's the takeaway, was never satisfied with merely cramming information into the heads and minds of His hearers. He was never, ever satisfied with merely informing His individuals. No, Jesus the teacher wanted to inform you so that you would now be inspired to do something with what you have just learned. And so here is Jesus. He, he gives a strong application. And for those of us who teach the Word of God, we can never be satisfied with merely giving good information. But we must always beg the question, what do I do with the information I've just received? Now, now please hear me. Let me add this disclaimer. I, I am not making an appeal for all application-driven messages that are devoid of meat. I am not making an appeal for a diet word of God. What I am making an appeal for is that we must apply. And we all know churches that are so application driven. It's, like, it's almost like these churches, they just give you a knife and a fork, these utensils to apply, yet no meat. And, and you almost get a picture of a congregation who's sitting there with a knife and fork, but there's no substance to dig into. Please understand, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus over and over and over again has given us solid meat from the Beatitudes where he talks about meekness and poverty of spirit and being a peacemaker to verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5, where he gives us the meat of what we're supposed to be about the salt of the earth and the light of the world to the hard teachings that in chapter five, where he talks about anger being equated with murder and adultery and and lust to chapter six, where he talks about praying and giving and fasting from pure motives, to the end of chapter six, where he talks about possessions and don't seek them and don't worry about them. Jesus has given us meat, but now he's saying, do something. And so, on one side, we're not saying no, all application with no meat. We're not saying that. It's not the model Jesus gives us. But on the other side, we're not saying, Just merely give meat with no application. And we all know churches like that who love to give the deep stuff, but they never tell you what to do with the deep stuff. And so let's talk about justification and sanctification and glorification. Let's talk about the doctrines of grace and total depravity and and, and perseverance of the saints and limited atonement. Let's talk about the deep stuff And yet these churches, they never get around to how this deep, substantive doctrine applies to my life when I get out of bed on Monday morning. And so it's almost like these churches are merely content to give you a 20-ounce porterhouse with no utensils to apply and digest it and integrate it into your life. So the methodology of teaching that Jesus gives us is highly substantive. Rich meat, but at the same time, highly applicable. And Jesus ends on the application note saying, everyone then who hears these words and does them. So I want my teaching to be like that. Strong substance, strong doctrine, yet highly applicable. Now, there's something else finally I want you to see about His teaching. Look at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were, underline it, astonished at his teaching. Uh, You know this. I do do not even need to repeat it. Sitting under a world-renowned Bible teacher like Sandy Wilson. You know that the New Testament written in Greek, Greek word here for astonished that Matthew uses, it simply means to strike a blow. It means to leave in awe. It means to wow. Here it is. It means to be blown away. You you get the impression when Matthew says the crowds were astonished, they were blown away, it's almost like you can see them. Their mouths are wide open. Their eyes are bulging out of their heads. They're astonished. But here's the question. Why are they blown away? Verse 29 tells us. For he was teaching them, here it is, as one who had authority. Now what does this mean? Make a note of Matthew 28, 18. This word authority is used in Matthew 28.18 and it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, here it is, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. So here's Jesus saying, Matthew 28.18, All authority, hear it now, has been given to me. The idea here is Jesus is saying, I'm not producing this authority in and of myself. It has been given to me. The implication is it's been given to me by God. Double back now to Matthew 7. The crowds are astonished. They are awed. Why? Because he teaches as one who has authority. In context, it means this, that when you heard Jesus preach, what awed you, what wowed you, is that when you heard him open his mouth, you knew that what He was saying and how He presented it was not man-made. It was divine. It bore the signature of the divine on it. That to hear from Jesus, you were profoundly struck with the impression that to hear this man was to hear from God Himself. I want this for my ministry. I, I, I want this for my ministry, and I want it for all of us who teach the Word of God that when people hear Brian Leritz teach, when they hear me preach, they are not listening to something that is man-made. They are hearing from God Himself. That's why I get a little concerned with how our seminaries are training preachers today in a postmodern culture. And they're saying, listen, in a postmodern culture, they don't like authority. They don't want to be told. So you stand up there with your little cute t-shirt on and your skinny jeans and your soul patch and your horn-rimmed glasses and you just share with your metrosexual Bible. And you just tell them. You just talk to them. You just come alongside of them. Jesus says, I teach with authority that I believe that what I'm saying is the very Word of God. And this the idea of pathos, the Greeks said great speakers have three things. They have logos, they have ethos, they have pathos. The idea of logos is content. You hear a great speaker and you always leave saying, I learned something. Ethos is the idea of ethics. You hear a great speaker, the Greeks said, and there's this profound sense in which they live what they're speaking. But finally the Greeks said, great speakers have pathos. The idea of pathos is passion. And if you know anything about the Greeks, when they used the word pathos or passion, they did not mean animation. I mean, goodness. This is the society that gave us the Stoics. They're not talking animation. When they said pathos, they said when you hear a great speaker who's got pathos, you always leave saying, I may not agree with what they said, but here's what I do know. They feel it. There's a sense in which whatever there is that they're sharing, it means something to them. Pathos. This is the idea of authority. When you heard Jesus speak, because He was speaking the words of God, there was a sense of pathos. Authority. This means something. And I want this for my teaching. Now this is how Jesus taught. Let's spend our last moments together asking the question, What is his message? What is the meat of our passage? I want you to brace yourself because Matthew chapter 7 is one of the most unsettling chapters in all of Scripture. You walk through Matthew chapter 7, if you have any inkling of the Spirit of God living inside of you, your knees knock and you are forced to question, Am I a genuine follower of Jesus? Now, track with me, I promise you, we're coming back to this text. But in Matthew chapter 7, the imagery that Jesus uses is all surrounded by the number two. Not three, not five, not 12. It all centers on the number two. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and following, Jesus says there's two kinds of trees there's the bad, unhealthy, diseased tree that produces bad, unhealthy, diseased fruit. And there is, secondly, one other kind of tree. It is the good tree. This represents the regenerate person who produces good fruit. Later on in Matthew chapter 7, around about verse 21, Jesus continues this theme of two. He says there's two paths. Not three, not five, not ten. Two paths. There's the broad path that everyone takes. This path, he says, leads to destruction. Then he says there's the narrow path. This is the path that only a few take and this path leads to eternal life. Then in our passage Matthew 7:24 to 29 Jesus continues to press this imagery of two. He says there's two kinds of builders. There's the foolish builder who builds his house on the flimsy foundation of sand. And there's the wise builder, the builder who builds his foundation on the solid rock. And in biblical context, that rock is God. That rock is Jesus Christ. So please understand, Bible Belt Christian, this simple insight. Jesus says when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God you only have one of two options you are either on the narrow path you are either on the narrow path walking this narrow way producing good fruit building your house on the firm foundation the solid rock of Christ living in eternal life in the here and now or you are the unregenerate person who is producing bad fruit on the broad path on the broad path and producing a bad, foolish house on the flimsy foundation of saying, hear it, in Jesus' mindset at your neighborhood, He leaves no room for what we'd like to call cultural, nominal Christianity. Jesus says when it comes to the things of the kingdom, you are either all in or all out. Now let me just give this disclaimer because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. The idea of a carnal Christian is one who lives according to the flesh. And yet I know standing in second Presbyterian, even though you all may not agree with it, I know it's the position of this church that this church holds to the doctrines of the grace. One of those doctrines of grace being the perseverance of the saints. And that verse comes from Hebrews 10, 39 that says this. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul, which means this carnal Christians do not ultimately live in carnality. Genuinely redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, even though we go through periods of time in which we're living in sin, living in the flesh, genuine redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, we repent of our sin by the grace of God, by His Spirit, we walk the narrow path and produce good fruit. And so if you are here today, And the trajectory of your faith is a cultural Christianity, a nominal Christianity, which those phrases aren't even found in the Bible. Jesus is saying, you might as well be an unregenerate person, either you're producing good fruit or you are not. So let me press this imagery some more. No doubt in this audience this morning, talking to a group of men, many of you are sports fans. You've got your teams, Memphis Tigers, Vols, on and on we could go. Here's some basic principles to fans. Sports fans know about their players. If you're a genuine fan, you probably know the starting five to your basketball team. If you're a genuine fan, you could probably tell me some of the star players on the starting offensive or defensive teams, you're a sports fan. Uh, No doubt, if you're a sports fan, you could probably even tell me of some of your star players in times past. If you're a Vols fan, you could tell me about Reggie White and what number he wore and what position he played and what years he played at UT. You could tell me why, because you're a sports fan. You're on the blogs, you're researching, you've probably even designed your own We Hate Lane Kiffin website. You are a sports fan. Not only do you know about your star players, but no doubt as a fan, you go to the events. You, you, you go to the stadiums. You you, you go to the to, to the gymnasium. You 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 clap. You yell. You shout. You do stuff for teams that you wouldn't do in your own church. That's a whole nother subject for a whole nother time. You get animated. You clap, you cheer, you shout, you do all this wonderful stuff. In fact, we got a guy on the staff, he, he's a pretty laid-back guy, really laid-back man, guy named Brian Crenshaw, he's our student ministries director. He's a big UT fan. We went to go see the, the, the Vols play the Gators uh, last year. And here we're on campus, and we're driving around, and Brian Crenshaw, this real laid-back guy, we see some um, some Gators coming our way, they've got the apparel on. He sticks his head out the window and is yelling at them. And I'm going, dude, if this was a job interview, I so would not have hired you. I mean, he is a fan. That's what fans do. They know about their players and they go to the events. But please don't get it confused. When me and Brian Crenshaw were watching the Gators and the Vols play, not once did it strike us. We ought to go down on the field. Not once did we think we should go in the locker room. Not once did we think we should ask if we could suit up and get into the game. Why? Because we understood that while we were fans, we were not players, and those two things are drastically different. The problem with Christianity today, Second Press, Amen Bible Study, is that there are so many people who call themselves Christians when at the end of the day they're fans of Christianity, they're not players. And so you know about our star players. You, you can tell us about Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul. You can even tell, even tell me about star players throughout church history like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Billy Graham. You know about the players. Not only do you know about them, but you go to the events. You come to church, you give your money, you clap, you serve, you shout, you do those wonderful things. But please, the great tragedy of heaven for even some of you sitting here today is when you get in heaven, you will hear Jesus's words in Matthew 7, depart from me. I never knew you because heaven is not for fans. It's for players. And that's the problem with Bible Belt Christianity. What we have done down south is we have created a greenhouse that accommodates fans, not players. And I want to beg you this morning Jesus says what gets you into the kingdom is solely his work of grace. And please do not confuse me this morning. I am not preaching work salvation. You cannot, cannot, cannot work your way into the kingdom. You can't lose your salvation. How in the world can you lose anything you did not earn in the first place? The question is not whether or not can you lose it. Did you ever really have it? And the genuinely redeemed person is a player, not a fan. So I ask you this morning, as a guest who can talk very forthrightly, because I've got a wonderful church home, are you a fan or are you a player? Are you producing good fruit while on the narrow path building a house on a firm foundation? Where are you this morning? So as we come to our text, we must understand in its theological context, Jesus leaves no room for cultural nominal Christianity. He leaves no room for fans. Matthew 7 is solely about players. Yet as we come to our passage this morning, Jesus tells us there are two builders. Notice how he describes them. He describes them as the wise and the foolish builder. Now those of you who have been around all things Christianity for a while, you know that in order for us to unpack these terms, wise, foolish, that the place that we go to in the scriptures, which no doubt influenced Jesus in his teaching here, is the book of Proverbs, The book of Proverbs is the clearest place in the Scriptures that gives us a very clear definition of the wise and the foolish person. It's interesting, but as you study the book of Proverbs, there are several writers who contribute to that volume of work. These writers, watch it now, they all personify wisdom and foolishness. In fact, they both personify them as women, watch the imagery now, who stand in the middle of the streets surrounding these women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Foolishness, are a mighty throng of people who are passing to and fro by them. For example, in the middle of this street is Lady Wisdom. and She's personified this way, as a woman who shouts out her instructions. Some hear what she has to say and are unmoved by her instructions, they keep going. That's the foolish person. On the other hand, there are those who hear the instructions of Lady Wisdom. They stop, listen, and apply Lady Instruction's words to their lives. In fact, the book of Proverbs can be summed up in one word. Listen. The wise person is the person who hears and then takes what he or she has just heard and applies it to their lives. In fact, I want you to understand back in Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus gives us the clearest definition of biblical wisdom in all of the scriptures. Here it is. Jesus, pulling on this imagery from Proverbs, says this, Everyone then, hear it now, who hears these words of mine, he doesn't stop there, and does them. That's wisdom. Wisdom, if I could give you a thumbnail definition, is the correct application of the scripture's teaching to my life. Wisdom is not just the hearing, but is the application and the integration of the biblical teaching I've just heard to my life. As my grandmama used to say, wisdom has shoe leather on it. It is me walking in what I've just known. Now, please understand this. Biblically speaking, the fool is never portrayed as the ignorant person. The fool is never portrayed as the person who doesn't know better, but the fool is always portrayed as the person who doesn't do better. Biblically speaking, the fool is the person who refuses to act on what they know. That's why you can have a lot of knowledgeable fools. Folk who grew up in church, went to Sunday school, learned the lessons, took the notes, but whose lives are absolutely chaotic and in shambles because the fool has said along some lines, I will not do what I've just heard. By the way, one of the things I've learned, and I've gotten very hardcore in my counseling, a lot of time I've spent, I've been in ministry now for about 20 years, I have wasted a lot of time trying to counsel fools. There are fools who sit in my office, and I see this all the time in marital relationships, and it's typically the man whose wives have drugged them into my office, and they sit there pretty much going, I ain't going to do any of this. That's the fool. I hear what you say. I know what I should do, but I will not do what I know I should be doing. That is the fool. Now, it's an interesting study because as you walk through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is just replete over and over and over of symptoms of traits of foolish people. Let me give you five traits of the fool. Proverbs chapters 5 and 7, two whole chapters, are given to deal with one trait of the fool, adultery. Chapters 5 and 7, Lady Wisdom is begging her son to listen and apply her words and in some, Lady Wisdom is saying, don't go to the adulteress's house. If you are in adultery right now, if you are in an emotional and or physical affair with someone who is not your spouse, the Bible says you're a fool. Proverbs 10.18 gives us another trait. The fool is a person who slanders others, who talks behind their back. Proverbs 13.1 says that a fool resists rebuke. That is, you cannot correct a fool. If every time someone sits you down and tries to correct you and tries to speak the truth in love to you and you resist, you excuse it or explain it away, Proverbs says, You're a fool. Proverbs 18:1 says another trait of the fool is the fool lives in isolation. They know nothing of the joys of community. They don't do friendships. Yes, they may have a lot of names in their Blackberry, but they don't really have any friends. People they do life with. If that's you, Proverbs says, you are a fool. Proverbs 29.20, I don't even need to mention this to a group of men. It says that one of the traits of a fool is that they talk a lot. Always saying something. That is the trait of a fool. Now here's the question, Brian. I understand what foolishness is. But what according to Jesus exactly, and talk to me in pinpoint accuracy, what does it mean to walk in wisdom? Look again at verse 24. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, what are these words of his? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in context is saying, biblical wisdom in Matthew 7 verse 24, the wise person is the person who lives the Sermon on the Mount. It's the person who lives the Beatitudes. No, the Beatitudes, I don't do them. God does them through me as I submit and surrender to his life. He doesn't say blessed are those who do mercy or blessed are those who do meekness. He simply says blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. And so biblical wisdom in the Beatitudes is this. simply means that I submit to all that God is doing in my life. And as I submit, He works through me poverty of spirit. He works through me humility. He works through me wisdom. Biblical wisdom is that I live Matthew 5, 13-16, that I live the fact that I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that I am an influencer in my culture for the glory of God that what this means for Brian and Cory Luritz its Christ followers is that on our street that we function as the chaplain so to speak of our street We're inviting our unsaved neighbors over, and we're putting good food on the barbecue grill, and we're sitting down, and typically the conversation goes like this. Hey, we've been hanging out for a while. You know what I do. I'm a pastor, so how do you want to do it? Um, I want to tell you about Jesus. You knew this conversation was coming. And that's what it means to walk in wisdom. I share my faith biblical wisdom in Matthew chapter 6 at the end of Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus talks about the gospel and possessions it means that i don't seek possessions first that my primary aim in life is not zeros in a bank account or a retirement fund but i seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto me biblical wisdom means in context that i don't worry That I'm not anxious about my life, what I will eat or drink, Matthew 6.25. Nor about my body, what I will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Biblical wisdom means even though my life may be chaotic, I am not worrying. That I'm anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The peace of God marches guard duty around my heart. That's biblical wisdom. It means that I live a Sermon on the Mount kind of life. Now, here's Jesus' promise. Jesus' promise is this, men. When we, by His Spirit, live the Sermon on the Mount, He says our roots go deep. We build a firm foundation. And when the storms of life come, we have this guarantee that our house will not collapse. Now, let me just say this, and what I'm about to say is like kryptonite to the Joel Osteens and the prosperity theologians of the world. Please notice, meteorologically, what happens to both houses. Please notice that the storms hit not just the foolish person's house, but the wise person's house as well. See, Joel Osteen and the Creflo dollars of the world, and by the way, Brian, why are you naming these heretics? Because Paul names heretics. There are heretics out there who are threatening the faith of the sheep. When it comes to wolves, you don't pet wolves, you shoot them. I want you to understand this morning, there are prosperity theologians out there who would send the message, you just live the word and you won't have a storm. They don't read Matthew 7. Jesus says the storm hits the wise person's house walking in wisdom, living the Word of God does not incubate me from storms. What it does do is it guarantees me that when the storms come, I won't collapse. That's what he's getting at now. Live the Word of God. You'll have a firm foundation. But what are storms, Brian, as we end our time together? I think there's two senses. I think one, there's a present sense. James says it this way, the brother of Jesus in James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The idea of trials, it speaks of an unfortunate event that happens from the outside. And the reality is this, because we live in a fallen world, we will experience trials or what Jesus calls in our text, storms. That no matter how faithful I live, I will encounter storms. It doesn't mean God's mad at me. I will encounter them. So I could be working hard on my job, tithing, giving money away the way that I should, and I get the pink slip. That's a storm. I, I could be handling my body as a good steward of the temple of God, and yet the doctor's report says cancer. That's a storm could be loving my wife as Christ loved the church, and yet I find out about her infidelity. That is a storm. It doesn't mean I've done anything wrong. See, Job, it just means that I live in a fallen world, and the reality of a fallen world is storms. I got a buddy of mine, true story. Um, he decided to take his wife on, a, on an anniversary trip. And so he surprised her by taking her on a cruise and they cruised up the coast to go to Alaska and not long, true story after they got onto the ship there, they encountered a storm. And my buddy's wife tends to be a little domineering, he tends to be a little pass- passive, which makes for a very bad combination. And um, So she was very upset that she wasn't getting the kind of information she felt she should have been getting from the captain. Many people were sick on board, and uh, her husband begged her not to call the captain. She decided she was going to call the captain anyways. She picks up the phone, true story, dials the captain's quarters, and the captain's assistant picks up. And my buddy's wife says, I need to talk to the captain. I'm not getting enough information. Uh, The captain's assistant says, well, he's busy navigating the ship through the storm, true story. uh, But if you'll just give me your questions, I'll relay them to the captain, and he's usually great at responding back. She thinks about it, my buddy's wife does, and then she launches off into a series of questions, and they're very ridiculous questions, like how long will the storm last, and for some reason we can't get to our final destination, and we have to turn around and come back, Will we get a full or partial refund on and on and on. She's going. Uh, The captain's assistant listens patiently. My friend's wife finishes. The captain's assistant says, ma'am, I've heard you, notated your questions. I'll relay them to the captain. The captain will then issue you a response. Sure enough, then uh, she sits down, gets off the phone, and she's waiting. A few moments later, the phone rings. It's the captain's assistant who my buddy's wife has just talked to. The captain's assistant says, ma'am, I want you to know I have notated your questions. I've relayed them to the captain. The captain wishes now true story to issue you two responses. First thing the captain wants to say to you, no disrespect, ma'am, but go to sleep. Captain says, listen, this ain't my first rodeo. I've navigated many ships through storms. I've gone to school for this. I've got the practical experience. And because I know what I'm doing and you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't make sense for both of us to lose sleep tonight. You go to sleep, ma'am. I'll worry about the ship. (laughs) But secondly, ma'am, the captain wants you to know that you can rest easy tonight because this ship was built with this storm in mind. The captain wants you to understand that when the architect sat down to design the ship and the builder sat down to build the ship, they did so under one fundamental nautical principle, and it is the reality of storms. They understood that if any ship was going to spend any time at sea, that a storm would come its way, and because of the reality of the storm, they better build the ship with that reality in mind. So you can rest easy, man, because not only do I have the expertise, but this ship was built with the storm in mind. This is exactly what Jesus is saying, that you better navigate and build your house with the reality of storms in mind, that there's coming a time when problems will show up on your doorstep. And I don't know how problems show up on your doorstep, but when they come to the Ritz home, they never come by themselves. They bring their aunts, their uncles, their cousins, and have a nice, wonderful family reunion right there. And because the storms and problems are coming, your roots need to dig down deep. So that your heart, your house of cards, will not be a house of cards and blow over, but that your house will be rooted and grounded on the firm foundation of not just hearing the word of God, but doing the word of God. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for these men and this wonderful time, this wonderful ministry, the Amen Bible study that is so enriched these men in our city. It is a time of intense learning and studying. And yet I pray, Lord God, that these men will never be content in the words of James to merely be hearers of the Word. But they would be doers of it. Our roots do not go down deep merely by writing more notes. But our roots go down deep by walking in the knowledge we've just gleaned. So, Lord God, I pray in conclusion two things. Number one, Lord God, I pray for those here who may be convicted of the reality that they're fans and not players. I pray, Father God, that they would respond to Your grace. Your grace would turn them from a diseased tree into a good one that bears good fruit. You would take them off the broad path and put them by Your grace on the narrow path. And that, Father God, in the name of Jesus, that they would be the wise builder. And then finally, Lord God, I I pray for these men. I pray, Father God, that these men, when the storms of life come, that they would be able to stand because their house is built on the firm foundation of the rock. We love you and we honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.